You are listening to Press Church Podcast. Please enjoy this week's message. I want to talk to you all today about a Psalms, a scripture in Psalms, but the, the Psalm that I'm speaking out of is Psalms 56. And I want to give you a context of how David wrote this song, why he wrote the song, what was going on in the middle of him with this psalm. David has just finished beating Goliath. He's just finished helping the king and the soldiers defeat the Philistines. He's decided, King Saul has decided that he wants David to live with him. He gives David his wife. I mean, he gives, yeah, he gives David his wife, which is his daughter. Also, whoever beats Goliath was given him and his family, his father's family, tax-free for the rest of their lives. Makes you want to go fight a Goliath now, if I could go get tax-free for the rest of my life and my family's life. So David's coming off of this great victory. David has already been, Samuel the prophet has already showed up and anointed him as the next king. He's defeated Goliath. They're singing songs about him. He's thinking that the world is turning. He's been hiding out in a field. He's been pushed out into a field. His dad doesn't even care that he's not involved when the prophet comes to his house. But then things start turning in David's life. What he thought was an ascent turns into a quick, quick descent. Because King Saul starts getting mad, if you read in 1 Samuel, at David. Because he realizes... The same thing that we see with Cain and Abel, the same thing that we see today. He realizes that God is with him. He realizes that he's the more popular one. He realizes that that he's going to eventually be king. He realizes all of these things. And King Saul gets mad that God is with him and God is not with him. And at least twice, while David is playing the harp and singing to his king to relieve him, of the anxiety and the frustration and and the anger. It says that King Saul picks up a spear and throws it at David, trying to pin him to the wall. As the worship team, aren't you glad (laughs) that uh, in the middle of your song, the congregation doesn't decide, I don't like this song, and start throwing things at you, specifically a spear. So David escapes multiple times, and he comes to his best friend Jonathan, who is King Saul's son, who King Saul's son, Jonathan, should be the one that should be taking over the throne. He should be the most mad at David, but instead he loves him, and they, they, they form this friendship, this covenant with each other. And David tells Jonathan, I have to leave because your dad is mad, your dad wants to kill me, and I can't stay. And Jonathan's, no, 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 dad's a little crazy, but he doesn't want to kill you. He doesn't want to hurt you. So David says, I'm going to leave the king's table for two days. And if he gets mad, then you know that he wants to kill me. If he doesn't, then, then you can kill me, David says. And look at 1 Samuel chapter 20, just 32 and 33. We're just jumping into the middle of this story. And Jonathan answered Saul. They're sitting at the table. David hasn't been at the king's table eating for two days he says, where's David at? And Jonathan makes up this story, and he says, well, David is going back to Bethlehem to make a sacrifice with his family. 
And Jonathan answered Saul, his father, and said to him, Why should he be killed? What has he done? Talking about David. In verse 33, Then Saul cast a spear at him, not at David, but at his own son Jonathan, to kill him, by which Jonathan knew that it was determined by his father to kill David. You think? If daddy, if daddy threw some spears at David, and then daddy threw a spear at me, it doesn't take Sherlock Holmes, it doesn't take the best detective to put two and two together that, oh, daddy's crazy, and daddy really does want to kill David. And so Jonathan goes out into the field, and he tells David, he does want to kill you. And David says, I've got to go on the run. I can't stay in the palace. I, I've got to go. And they cry, and they hug, and they kiss each other's necks, and they leave. So David is leaving this bad situation, and he ends up in a worse situation. He ends up in a city called Gath, and in Gath was the town run by the Philistines, and the king of Gath was known as Ashish, and he ends up in front of King Ashish in the city of Gath. The Philistines, the ones that he just killed, he just killed their greatest champion, the biggest enemies that the Israelites have been fighting and fighting and fighting. And if we jump a chapter in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verse 12, we jump into the middle of this story. It says, now David took these words to heart. He's standing in front of the king, and they're singing the song that the women were singing that King Saul had killed his thousands, but David had, ki had killed his ten thousands. And the servants of the king of Gath start singing this song and saying, Isn't that you? That the king's killed thousands, but you've killed ten thousands. And David realizes, uh-oh, I just left one king that's trying to kill me, and I've stepped into a worse situation. Now David took these words to heart. And was very much afraid of Ashish, the king of Gath. Ashish's name in Hebrew means I will blacken or I will terrify. Obviously, his name is up to par with this scripture right here. David is not king, although he has been pronounced as king. David has killed the champion and overthrown the Philistines to help his king, he has served his king, and now his king is mad at him and tried to kill him several times, and he is on the run, and now he finds himself in front of the most evil of kings, the king who wants him dead more than the others. And it says that David, if you actually read this in 1 Samuel 21, it says that David plays like he goes crazy. It says he starts crazying up his hair, he starts drooling in his beard, he starts crawling on the ground. So that the king thinks that he's crazy, which the king does. And he says, why did you bring this crazy man into my palace? Get him out of here so that he can escape. He's gone from one situation that he thought he was getting out of into a much worse situation. Let's tie this all together to help us out today. Have you been running from problem to problem? Have you been running from an enemy to an enemy? The more you attempt to get away from your problems, it seems like you find yourself in a worse position than before. And now we're going to read Psalms 57, specifically verse 9, to see how it can help us and guide us today. This is what David is saying in the middle of his chaos. David could have wrote a song and said, I hate King Saul, and I hate King Gath, the king of Gath. I hate the Philistines, and I hate everybody. 
But he writes in Psalms 56, verse 9, he says, When I cry out to you, that you being capitalized means he's talking to God. When I cry out to God, then my enemies will turn back. Look at this. This I know because, or another version says, that God is for me. When I cry out to you, then my enemies will turn back. And this I know because God is for me. The two truths we're going to pull out of this text today is number one, my voice is my weapon. And number two, my faith is my victory. My voice is my weapon and my faith is my victory. In the first part of verse 9, it says, When I cry out to you, then my enemies will turn back. He could have cried out in so many different ways. He could have cried out to his best friend, Jonathan. He could have cried out to the two kings. He could have cried out to himself and say, Why has it always happened to me? My dad left me out in the field. He's not proud of me. I was anointed king by the prophet, but I'm not the king. I was made fun of before I killed Goliath, then I killed Goliath, and now I'm in the king's palace. King hates me. He could have done all of these things. And you can go back, and I encourage you to read Psalms 56, and now that you know the full context of it this week, he says, when I cry out to you, when I cry out to God, the immediate thing that happens is that my enemies will turn back. Your voice is your weapon. We see throughout the scriptures the power of the man using his voice. We can look in the Old Testament. In Joshua chapter 5, we see the story that you learned if you've been in church at any point in time, the battle of Jericho, and how God could have used anything in any way to destroy Jericho, the very first big battle when they come into the promised land. And how do they conquer the very first battle in the promised land is by using their voice. The voice that had been silenced in Egypt. When they were in slavery, they were told to be quiet. They were told to submit. They were told not to ask questions. They were told to not use their voice. And the very first thing that God has them use in their promised land is their voice. And they shout out. They walk around in quietness and then they shout out. And the walls fall down. If you read in, jo in Joshua chapter 10, Joshua is now fighting another battle against the Amalekites or the Amorites. It's one of the Aites. And he's fighting them and he's beating them so bad that the sun is starting to set. And he realizes that if the sun sets, then they're going to lose the advantage that they have. They, he understands that if the sun sets, they are going to run away. They're going to regroup. They are going to, to fight again. And in the middle of battle, you can read the story in Joshua chapter 10, Joshua uses his voice and looks up at the sun and says, Sun, stand still. So that he could keep fighting the enemy and keep destroying the enemy so that they wouldn't come back. In Judges chapter 16, we see the story of Samson. And Samson has his strength through his hair and through the, the vow that God has given him. But he falls in love with a lady. And she is a Philistine. Those Philistines, they just keep showing their stupid face over and over and over throughout the time of the Israelites. And she starts working on him over and over and over again. Give me the strength 
give me the tip of your strength. Give me the secret to your strength. And finally, he relents, and he says, if you cut my hair, then all my strength is gone. And they do that, and the Philistines capture him. The man who has destroyed them and, and, and beat them over and over again, they finally capture him. It says they pluck his eyes out. They use him as a slave. And they're having this big party to celebrate their dumb God. And they bring him out. They said, let's make fun of Samson, the one who God created to defeat us. Now we have him in chains. And he's standing between these two pillars in this massive building that has a, 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 uh, a balcony above them. And he's standing between these two pillars and chains as they're making fun of him, as they're mocking him, as they're celebrating their God over his God. And Samson uses his voice. He says, let me pray one last prayer. He says, God, give me strength one more time to defeat my enemies. And he asks the Philistines, put my hands on these two pillars. And he pushes with all of his might as God answers his prayer. And it says that in that one moment, he kills more of the enemy than he had killed his whole life by using his voice. He had used the bone, the, the, the jawbone of a donkey. He had used his hands. He had done all of these, these feats of strength. And how does he defeat the Philistines? The worst is by using his voice to pray one last prayer. In 2 Kings chapter 1, the king is sending an army, a general and 50 men to come and capture the prophet Elijah. And Elijah stands up in front of these men as they come, and he calls down fire from heaven and consumes this general and the 50 men. The king gets mad, and he sends another general with another 50 men. How exciting is that? You hear what just happened, and now you've got to go. And they show up, and he uses his voice again to call down fire from heaven to consume those enemies. The king gets even more mad, and he sends a third general with 50 men. And this general and these 50 men show up. You can read the story. And they fall down at their knees in front of the prophet. And they said, please don't call down fire from heaven. We're just doing the orders of the king. Please don't kill us. And God gives the release to the prophet to go with them. Jesus uses his voice as a man on this earth. And Jesus uses his voice to calm the storms. Peace, be still. Jesus uses his voice to cast out demons. Come out in the name. Jesus heals the sick. The enemy of sickness that controls these people's bodies. Leprosy. And they're deaf and they're dumb and they can't speak. And he calls that sickness. He speaks that, that sickness out of them. Jesus raises the dead. Lazarus, come forth. He tells Jairus' daughter, to rise. Jesus runs off the devil after he's been fasting for 40 days. Jesus doesn't use a sword. Jesus doesn't use a tank. Jesus doesn't use his angels and his disciples to overthrow the devil. What Jesus has used is his word and his voice because he knows that his voice is his weapon. And he uses the scriptures to defeat the devil. And Jesus uses his, his voice to declare that the work is finished on the cross. When he yells out, it is finished. And then he gives the power and the authority to the disciples to use their voice to cast out the sick, to cast out demons, and to heal the sick and to raise the dead. And then he does something amazing. 
He gives the ability for you and for me in Acts chapter 2 to use our voice. And what does he say that our voice, the promise of the Father, which is what we'll be teaching about in our Bible study starting on June 9th, that I would love for each and every one of y'all to attend. June 9th, June 16th, June 23rd, Pastor Eric will be here to actually preach about receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And if that's something that you're interested in and something that you want to receive, then now is the time to start praying and asking God for it and that we will all receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit with the ability to speak in tongues. And look at Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And he's talking about the promise of the Father. He's talking about what's going to happen in Acts chapter 2, which is the, the, uh, the evidence of speaking in tongues. And this is what he says it is. But you shall receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, that speaking in tongues and using your voice equates to God as being power from the Holy Spirit, that your voice is a weapon. In Romans chapter 10, verses 8 through 10, we've heard this scripture before, but what does it say that the word is near you, and where's the word near you? In your mouth. And in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. Verse 9 says that if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. No ifs, ands, or buts. And verse 10 says, For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. I don't know what salvation you need in your life or in your situation, but the salvation that David need, needed, he says, when I cry out to the Lord, then my enemies turn their back. They don't keep coming toward me. They don't keep attacking me. They don't keep running at me. They don't keep coming and, and over and over and over again. Because as soon as I use my voice as a weapon against the enemy, they turn their backs. And if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and you believe in your heart, then you will be saved. That we take this scripture as we should in regards to our initial salvation. But this is a continual salvation. If you need salvation in your physical body, if you need salvation in your mind, if you need salvation in your marriage, if you need salvation in some type of restoration in your life, it says that if you confess with your mouth, that Jesus is the Lord of my life. Salvation is there at your beck and call. It was amazing working in the prison to watch these very, very large men and even some women that were bigger than me when I would use my voice to watch them obey those commands. In the back of my mind, I would think, there's no way this guy's going to say, yes, sir, and do what I'm about to ask. He's going to punch me in the face. He's probably going to pick me up and rip me in half. There were times when I would go, usually it happened a bunch because I was going to school and then I would show up and one of the main sergeants would have me take um, these lists of high profile. We had four high profile um, inmates that were in isolated segregation. They weren't allowed to be in general population. They weren't allowed to be with anybody else. Um, and they had to be in cells by themselves. So they got one hour a day outside of their cell. And usually they were so busy, by the time I got there from school, the sergeant would be like, go take them to the rec yard for an hour. And so I would have them come to the door, and I would cuff them up. 
and I would bring them to the rec yard. And it's crazy to me and wasn't safe at all. But they would open the rec yard, the, the chain link fence that we had that was an automatic lock where the basketball courts were. They would open that up. We had one camera that they would, I was hoping they would watch me on. And all four of these guys had committed murder multiple times. Some of them had, had murdered multiple people. And they would stand all around me, one in front of me, one to the right, one to the left, and one behind me. And I would have the handcuff key. And I would go and I would unlock all of their handcuffs as they would walk into this thing. Then I would close the gate and it would automatically lock. And I thought, well, this isn't safe at all. Like, what? there's four murderers standing around me. And then the wreck would end and I would open the gate and they would come walk back to me. And I would say, give me your hands. And I would cuff each and every one of them as they stood around me. Bigger than me. They worked out all the time. All they had was the ability to work out and plan how to kill this little scrawny kid so that they could escape. And they never did. One, because of the protection of God. Thank God. But two, there was an authority that went behind my voice when I said, stop it. Don't do that. Cuff up. Face the wall. Put your hands behind your back. They did it. Because there was an authority associated with that. It wasn't just Jeremiah Paul Land's voice telling them to do that. There was a badge on my chest. And they knew that the full, uh, I had the full amount of law behind me. I had all of uh, the police force that was behind me that was ready to help me. You need to use your voice as a weapon to speak to your enemy in your situation. Because you have the full authority of heaven behind you. The authority that you have been given will cause your enemy to turn back. Your voice is your weapon with the word of God being your ammunition. Don't just scream out at your problem. Leave me alone. I can't believe it's overtaking me. I'm so tired of this. No, no, no. That's not the ammunition that our voice needs. What we need is to find out what's in the scripture and say the word of God says. Jesus said, resist the devil and he will flee. Greater is he that's in me than anything that's in the world. That God is on my side. That we use those as the ammunition. Your voice is your weapon. And the second thing. In Psalms 56, verse 9, when I cry out to you, then my enemies will turn back. And verse 9 says, this I know that God is for me. Your voice is your weapon, but your faith is your victory. <clears throat> your faith is your victory. First John chapter 5, verse, verses 4 and 5. First John chapter 5, verses 4 says, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. You being born again are now born of God. Therefore, it says that you overcome the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. How do I get that victory in my life? How do I get victory over that situation? How do I quit going from one place to the next, from enemy to the enemy, from, from worse situation to more chaos? The victory of you that overcomes the world is our faith. Praise God. In verse 5, the writer of 1 John, which is the Apostle John, the disciple John is saying, who is he who overcomes the world? He's posing a question, but I love the Bible because he instantly answers that. We don't have to wonder that. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes, he who knows that Jesus is the Son of God. That's who overcomes the world. If you know it, your faith is your victory. 
How are you going to come out of that situation? It's knowing and believing that Jesus is the Son of God. He paid the price for you, and he paid the price so that you can walk out of that situation. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witness, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Verse 2 says, looking unto Jesus, the victory, Jesus, the Son of God, the one who has caused us to triumph in all things, the Scripture says, he is known as the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now sat down in a victory position at the right hand of the throne of God. Praise God. Our faith is our victory. There's a basketball player who played in the NBA for 10 years. He played like over 500 games by the name of Brian Scalabrini. You may or may not have ever heard of this guy. He averaged over his career in the NBA like three points a game, if that. Big, white, doofy-looking guy, power forward. He played for the Boston Celtics, played for a couple different teams. He played for uh, the Nets, I believe, the Bulls, um, and he played for the Celtics. But he played for the Celtics in 2005 to 2010. And in 2008, there's like 62 games in the regular season. He played in 48 of those regular season games. Didn't even play the full season. And he only started nine of the 48 games that he played. 60-plus games, he only played in 48 of them. And of those 48, he only played nine of them. And in 2008, the Boston Celtics made it to the NBA playoffs. And although he had averaged three points a game for however many seasons he had played, and for that whole season, during the entire run of the playoffs, he didn't play one game. He stood on the sidelines. He wasn't hurt, just didn't play. Coach didn't play him. Paul Pierce was on that team. Ray Allen was on that team. Big Baby Glenn Davis was on that team. Kevin Garnett was on that team. They played every game in the playoffs. They played every series. And Brian Scalabrini stood there on the sidelines and watched his team bleed, get hurt, win game after game after game after game. He watched them play all of this playoffs. They made it all the way to the finals. And they played game after game after game, blood, sweat, and tears, and in 2008, the Boston Celtics won the NBA championship. And when it came to the next year, they were handing out championship rings. And Paul Pierce, he got a championship ring. And Ray Allen got a championship ring. And Kevin Garnett got a championship ring. But you know who else got a championship ring? Brian Scalabrini, who didn't do anything. Barely contributed, played a little bit here and there, and then didn't play one game in the playoffs. The other players did all the work, but somehow he still got the victory. Hebrews eleven, twelve, verse 2 says that Jesus endured the cross. Jesus despising all the shame. He did all the work, but somehow you get the championship ring and get all the victory by simply believing in him and believing on the work that he did. Jesus is our victory. He did all the work, and you get to celebrate and walk in that victory. 
Jesus' name is victory. Victory is the author and the finisher of your, of your faith. Therefore, he knows what you're going through in the middle right now, and he's already provided the victory. If he wrote the beginning of your faith, and he already knows how the end of your faith is going to be, he's right there with you in the middle, helping you, because his victory is your victory. And how do you obtain that victory is by your faith. Your faith is your victory to help you overcome your enemies and situations. And I didn't even tell you the title of this sermon, <laughs> which the title of the sermon is called, It's Time to Talk Back. It's Time to Talk Back. And as we finish today, I want to read toward the end of Psalms 56, verse 11. Here's another scripture. David's still in the same situation. He just wrote verse 9. He wrote verse 10, and then he writes verse 11. In God, I've put my trust. He's got two kings chasing him, two kings that want to kill him. On top of two kings means there's two armies and two nations that are looking for this one person. I will not be afraid. Look at this. What can man do to me? I don't have two kings chasing me today. I don't have a whole two nations and two armies chasing me. But there's some sickness, there's some debt, there's some frustration, there's some anxiety, there's some things that are chasing me in my life and in your life as well. And hopefully this can help you today. It's time to talk back. It's time to talk back to the enemy. It's time to talk back to their situation. To say that my voice is my weapon and my faith is my victory. Use your voice today with the ammunition of the Spirit of God, the Word of God, to speak to your situation and believe that victory is on the horizon. Amen? Amen. Let's pray today, and I think Alyssa wants to share something, and then we'll finish up. Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for your Word. I thank you for the seed that we have scattered over our souls and our spirits today. And Father, I ask that as we go into this week that you water that seed, that you water that seed in our lives, and that it grows and it bears fruit, some 30, some 60, even 100-fold. Father, I ask you today to help these people in their situations. Father, encourage them and remind them when a situation happens, when the enemy is attacking, when something's coming against them, that they remember that the word and their voice is the weapon to cause the enemy to turn back and to leave them. And that, Father, they find the scriptures that they need to speak it and declare so that the enemy turns away. And that no matter what happens, faith is the assurance of something that we don't see, even though the situation around us might be pure chaos, we know that God is with us, that God is on our side, that God is fighting for us, and that God is the victor. Therefore, he's given us the victory, and that we triumph in all things. Father, I ask you to bless these people. I ask you to bless those people who are out today, that are traveling, that are celebrating the long weekend, that you keep them safe, that you protect them, that those that are here as we go into today and tomorrow and enjoy our time off, that we rest and we recover in you, and that we celebrate this country and we celebrate those soldiers who have paid the ultimate price. Father, protect those soldiers who are still protecting us today. Keep them safe all over the world. Father, thank you for each and every person here. I thank you that they're blessed and highly favored. I thank you that they have the mind of Christ, that their body is healed by the stripes of Jesus, that no weapon formed against them shall prosper, and that they are the light and the salt of the earth, and that they will go out and diffuse the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ everywhere they go. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>
Do you have something to share? Thank you for listening to Press Church Podcast. If you would like more information about us or are interested in giving to our ministry, you can click the link in our bio or visit presschurch.org. Don't forget to follow us on social media at Press Church SC and have a great week.